I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to this week's Routine Checkup. This week we speak with the nurse practitioner, Kaylee Dayton, all about ICU delirium. Let's talk about it. about something super super interesting um and because i've had a lot of conversations with my partner about this one particular thing that we're going to be kind of covering but uh today we're joined by uh kaylee dayton um and kaylee you got some cool post nominals after your name uh don't know what they are would love to kind of dive into that before we get into anything else but uh aside from the post nominals kaylee is a critical care nurse practitioner we love our nps that's a um, that's a post nominal. That is that is it's it's so there so okay uh, we okay let's hit the letters first and there's, then let's guess there's, there's D N P so I don't know what the D is doctorate of nursing practice boom okay. there we go doctorate okay um, she's also the host of uh, the walking home from the ICU podcast and walking you through the ICU podcast now I don't think there's post nominals that come with that but I could be wrong uh, and also we uh, have podcasting the post nominals <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll take it with any of them. PD, Pod Daddies. Is, <laughs> oh, MSM. <laughs> those are, that's, that's not podcast. But we got them for podcasts. That's true. Um, and uh, uh, Kaylee, you're also a critical care outcomes consultant, which I'm, I'm, I would love to dive into that later. But as for the post nominals, we got AGAC, AGACNP. What is that? Um, so my certificate is an adult gerontology acute care nursing practice. Ooh. So as a nurse okay. practitioner, I work in acute care. Um, for adults. So Got I it. couldn't go to like a clinic and work with kids. I can't even work in the hospital with kids. Okay, okay. copy. Too Unless many letters, but that's, F- that's okay. <laughs> and gerontology, is, is, so gerontology just, uh, is just a broad term for adult or is that a specific above a certain age bracket, an age range? Um, it's, it's a, a ger- geriatrics. Okay. So it's adults, yeah. geriatrics. What's um, it, what, what is what what is geriatric? What is that, like, what's the definition? I think it's of like uh, like once you're over the hill, right? Yeah, but what's the definition like, of over the hill? Five and up, I think, makes you geriatric. Okay, there we go. When well, I said 50, I, was, I was joking, but it's confusing because <laughs> if you're if you're 35 and over and and a uh, uh, person who is pregnant, you're a geriatric pregnancy. You're a geriatric That's right. pregnancy. That's right. Yeah, they adapt it yep. to the to fit the pregnancy mold. Okay, we got all that shit out of the way. Now. We are going to be talking about, well, we're going to be talking about the ICU in a big way. We're going to be talking about uh, medically induced comas in a big way. But we're also going to be talking about um, ICU delirium. Are you guys, do you guys know what that is? I have no, no idea. Okay, man, it's so, it's such an interesting thing. So, Kaylee, I'm going to give it to you. Introduce yourself to our listeners. Give us a little bit of insight into what it is that you do and, um, and tell us about what the what the fuck is ICU delirium? Okay, so 
I think the best introduction is kind of the introduction to my career as a brand new nurse. Um, right back in 2012, I was really excited about starting my career going. I wanted to go straight into an ICU. I was interviewing in this ICU in Salt Lake city, Utah. And the nurse manager asked me point blank, would you be willing to walk patients on ventilators? And I was just totally clueless, right? I had like done a few rotations in the ICU and I just nodded my head and smiled and said, yes, I'm all about that thing that you said, right? And, so, <laughs> and, totally. uh, and, I, and I was honest, I said, you know, I just, you're going to have to teach me everything and I'm willing to do whatever, right? And then I started working there and no one made a big deal out of that concept of walking patients that have breathing tubes that are on ventilators. So for almost 30 years, come to find out, um, it's been a thing in that ICU where they allow patients to wake up shortly after intubation. So they, uh, they put the breathing tube in, they sedate them for that procedure. And then they don't give them, we don't give them any more sedatives. And they come out of that sedation, kind of like a colonoscopy. And you just kind of walk them through it and you say, hey, remember what we talked about beforehand? Or if you didn't get a chance to explain to them that they would have a breathing tube, say, hey, you're in the ICU. Here's what's going on. Right. And 15 minutes to an hour later, they're pretty much acclimated, chilling on the ventilator with this breathing tube. And so that was so normal. Everyone treated that as routine, as given an antibiotic. They were super nonchalant about it, that I just thought that was normal. Wait, and wait, so, wait, wait, wait. So yeah. when you say walk patients on a mm -hmm. ventilator, yeah. you mean like walk them through the fact that they are like walk them through it mentally, or you mean like take them Get up them for up a on walk? Their feet. Because what? like when oh, you first yeah. said, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, you walk them through and you're like, okay, here's, here's where we're at. Um, you know, if their condition is kind of stable, stable enough, we have a pretty high threshold for walking patients. I've walked patients on really high ventilator settings that were really, really sick. And we still had them on their feet walking. And we do that shortly after intubation. And it really helps them acclimate to the tube to like accept it. Like, okay, I do have this tube, but I'm not strapped and tied down to the bed. I Whoa. have a pen and paper. I can communicate. I'm even going to get up. I can walk around. Whoa. It really helps with their anxiety. It helps them synchronize with the ventilator better. Um, but all those things I didn't really appreciate because it was just so normal. It was like, you're human. So of course you're going to walk and you're going to be up in the chair during the day and you're going to be awake during the day and sleep at night. Cause that's what humans do. Wow. Holy I, I thought I that when people were on ventilators, it was like, yo, you're, you're stationary and yes. immobile. I had yeah. no idea. I didn't even know. Like, I didn't even know that that was like, I would have, I would have imagined when I imagine ventilator, I'm imagining a, a like a, a, a tube. That is, that is uh, like, imagine, imagine, Aww. imagine laying in bed, laying in bed. Okay. Picture this. This is, this is where, this is where my mind goes. Imagine laying in bed and swallowing a sword. And yeah. then, and then while, whilst the sword is swallowed in bed, you go, you know what? I'm going to get up and go take a piss and walk back to my bed. <laughs> I, I don't think you should get up with the sword in your throat. Too, too well, risky. So right? it's, too it's risky. Around, Sounds like you're wrong, Jer. It's a round flexible tube. It's not a knife. Uh, <laughs> no, and it's stabilized. You know, you have different either it's tied in or it's right, um, right, yeah. stuck like clamped down to something that's thicker to your face, right? Sure. So it is stabilized. It's not just free floating willy nilly, right? Mm. Um, but this perception that you have that, of course, patients would just be down because they right. have this tube, that is rooted in things that happened back in the 90s when it comes to critical care medicine. Okay. So even before the 90s, the 70s, patients on ventilators usually had tracheostomies and they were not as sick as the patients we have now. If they got sick, really sick, they would just die, right? right. But if they had other conditions like 
asthma, COPD, or, you know, just depending on the condition, they usually had a tracheostomy and they were awake and they were walking and that was normal. Fast forward to the nineties. We started to care for patients that were much sicker, like with conditions such as acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is, we heard about a lot about ARDS during COVID. Mm. It's a condition that can happen from any kind of assault to the lungs. Um, and that's what happened during COVID. A lot of patients developed ARDS. So in the nineties, we started to play around with how to take care of patients with the ARDS. It was a new diagnosis. So we were doing things like really high lung volumes with really high pressure. And these were archaic ventilators. And even the breathing tubes were really stiff. Mm. So all those combined factors of having air pounded into you by this machine that couldn't, couldn't sense your own breaths, couldn't synchronize with you, with these stiff tubes, big pressures, we were blowing lungs out, right? Oh my God. We were killing oh. patients. Yeah. So there's no way that you could be calm, compliant, and awake during that, right? right? right. They totally. could not synchronize the ventilator. So that's when we started to use these medications from the operating room, like benzodiazepines, things like Ativan, opioids, um, barbiturates, and lots of paralytics. And initially, they looked so much better. They synchronized the ventilator, and they oxygenated better, and they looked so comfortable. They looked like they were sleeping. And that's when the, we started to believe that they were sleeping, that they were more comfortable, that this mm -hmm. was much more humane and essential for survival, right? Now, years after, we started to look into that data and we realized that a lot of people died for combined reasons, right? All of those bad things like high pressures, lots of lung volume, like the blowing the lungs out did not help their survival. But also we found a huge correlation between the patients that got higher doses of those medications had a higher mortality rate. Sure. Mm. And, um, and then the few that did survive, we started to see that their quality of life was terrible. Mm -hmm. And they had things like severe cognitive impairments, high levels of trauma. They actually, yeah. in the early 2000s, one study showed that real memories of the ICU, those that actually remembered being in the ICU, the reality of the ICU, had a lower rates of PTSD than those that didn't remember the ICU, but rather had other alternative memories that they experienced because those medications Whoa, wow. cause ICU delirium, yeah. which we'll get into. So that, that was kind of the culture that most of us were not aware of what actually happened. And so that's when it started turning into let's care for all patients on ventilators that way, because it's sleep, it's more humane and it's like better for survival, which is against the science. When you say, wow. when you say there was an increased rate of mortality for people who were getting those drugs who looked peaceful, but the rate of mortality was going up. Um, and you mentioned the previous factors like the blown out lungs and stuff that would cause that. Um, was there also like, what were some of the other factors that impacted um, increased mortality of those patients? Um, aside from the blown out the lungs, right? One of the ways, well, there are many ways in which these medications increase mortality. When you, um, you have to understand what these medications do, first of all. They turn off the brain or disrupt the brain and they prevent sleep. So the iron, irony that most of us in the ICU, we believe that sedation is sleep, mm -hmm, but right. you look into the science and you, under EEG or when they're monitoring the brain activity while patients are receiving those medications, there's nothing that resembles sleep. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. there's no, there's no shortage of evidence now that like, that there's a big problem with like the prevalence of of taking something like an uh, like a uh, like an Ativan um, for like for going to sleep, 
like people right because benzodiazepines are the least have the least resemblance to sleep right it's like you get you'll get knocked out like, like you're not you're, getting like REM. you're not getting deep in rem or right. I, I mean, maybe you maybe you are in some small quantities but like not the way you require yeah it, it blocks rem three and four mm. so it makes sleep impossible so in reality that is sleep deprivation yeah and Which leads to fucking everything God, like right and how do we i mean yes it's for not just for i mean you can use those medications we even see that the higher dose of medications you use for the short term during surgery, the worse the outcomes are after surgery. And that's right. just for a few hours. Right. Imagine these patients are getting high doses over days to weeks and right. absolute sleep, sleep deprivation in any other context that's called torture. And is, mm. and what we're talking about right now is, is this what is referred to as medically induced coma? Yes. Right. Okay. Okay. So when I say sedated, I mean, um, when they are unarousable, mm -hmm. um, and there are different levels of sedation. There are different scales that we use to measure how sedated someone is. So if they answer to voice, how quickly they respond, how how much they stay alert or fall back, quote, asleep or unresponsive, right? Right. Um, and then, but a lot of times, which is a whole nother conversation, um, throughout the IC community, we'll, we will intend or order these sedatives be given to, a, um, to the point in which someone can open their eyes to voice. But in reality, they're actually being sedated to where they, you can give them a titty twister and they don't respond. Right, right, totally. <laughs> wow, yeah. But <clears throat> there's very little accountability and, and, and really training. That's where I come in as a consultant is to say, let's really, let's get on the same page about what these medications actually do. Because what I'm, what I'm sharing is, can be perceived as very incriminating against the ICU community. But my point is, what I'm telling you, most ICE clinicians do not know themselves. So I was really enraged when I finally found out because I'm like, I had been a travel nurse. After that ICU, I went to be a travel nurse and I ended up treating patients just like everyone else did. And when I found out what the reality of this, I was so upset. I'm like, you mean I was in charge of giving and titrating those medications mm. and I didn't have a clue what they did. Well, that's a really hard place, I imagine, for you, a really hard position to be in um, especially in the context of the medical community, because I know that there's a lot of dogma in medicine and it's mm -hmm. like, it takes a long time for something to change. Like even in the face of evidence, which like seems crazy because science medicine seem to be so intertwined, but I know that there's a lot of like, we've been doing it. So this is how we do it. Um, yep. mentality. So to be in that place, did you, was there a, you know, it sounds like it sounds like on the trajectory of this conversation, we're we're going to a place where we un, we we start to understand that uh, sedating these people in the same way is has a negative impact. So we start to change that. But like when you started down this path and learned this, was there a sense of feeling like a crazy person because you're trying to be like, well, uh, I'm pretty sure we should maybe be switching up the protocols here in the face of this evidence, but turning you know, turning the Titanic around. Yeah. Trying to change an entire culture is a little easier. Said oh, than it was. Yeah. It was extremely uncomfortable for me. I mean, just imagine moving past the nineties. That's when this kind of spread like wildfire. And it's believed that every patient on the ventilator has to be comatose. Um, <clears throat> not knowing what the medications do, even though in the early two thousands, that research from the nineties is starting to result. And we're starting to talk about it saying, wow, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> People are dying from this. Mm -hmm. 
And then, um, then we started looking into what's actually happened with the brain and what does, why are these people so cognitively impaired and traumatized? And then we start looking at ICU delirium and we start coming out with this research, but this has been talked about in medical conferences, but it's not reaching the bedside. Right. So meanwhile, all these things are coming out in journals, but this practice of automatically sedating every patient right after intubation, no questions asked, continued. Right. But with the ICU I was in, in the 90s, one nurse, Polly Bailey, followed a survivor out. And she was a young mother in her 30s. And she watched her. She was from her Polly's community. Polly would visit her in her home and saw it took a year for her to get up the stairs. Her husband was having to help her with a bedpan in the in the in the bed. She was cognitively, psychologically destroyed. So Polly went back to her medical director and said, what are we working so hard for if we're ruining their lives? Yeah, what yeah. if they be out here? <laughs> Imagine a ner young nurse in the 90s saying, what if we don't do that? And there was no research to support it. She just had this wild hair of keeping patients awake and moving. So he let her experiment with it and it worked. And they could okay, immediately wow. see drastic change in outcomes. So then when they, that hospital system started a new ICU, Polly got to be in charge of training the nurses. She oh, pulled wow. out nurses from nursing homes and said, welcome to the ICU. Here's what we do. Total culture cleanse, starting from scratch. Wow. So then I come in in 2012. Wow. This is a very well-established program. And I don't even know what's what, right? I think that that's normal. That's standard. I go to be a travel nurse. Oh, uh, yeah. And that's my where you first go, shift. What the fuck is going on here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. The lights are down. Yeah. It's a day shift. The lights are down. And I'm used to like lights being on, patients already in the chair, you know, just yeah. a very alive environment. And everyone seems like they're dead, except for like the monitors that tell me otherwise. Right. And um, I get my patient assignment and I have an orientee nurse because I'm new there. No one knows me. No one knows what my experience is. And I asked my orientee nurse just casually because I can't figure out why my patient's sedated. I want to make sure he wasn't missing something. I'm like, hey, can I get sedation off and get them up? And this nurse just looked at me like I was speaking French. Wow. Right. And you're like, oh, no. Yeah. This you're one of those. Oh, you're one of those. You're one of those that wants to come in and tell us what to do. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe. I, I, I mean, she just like. I don't even know if she knew what, what one of those was like. Right, right. She, she was probably just like, are, what, what fucking school did you go to? Are you, yeah. are you right. crazy? Like this person, you, you're just a travel nurse. You're supposed to yeah. be experienced in this, you know, with years of experience. Yeah. Cause that's what you're supposed to have being a travel nurse. And she, I'm sure she was like, have you even worked in an ICU? Right. Can I, can I ask you something? I'm, I'm so, so again, this is, uh, this is blowing my mind mm -hmm. because again, like, like that nurse, I was, and again, I've, I've never, I've never worked in an ICU. So it like, I don't, I really don't know much about anything when it comes to the ICU, but my, you know, my, my partner, she was an ICU nurse for, um, the better part of seven years. And I've talked to her about it a ton and, and I have like a little bit of understanding about like ventilation and stuff. Um, so I, I was like that nurse where I just thought, oh, when you are ventilated, you are, you're drugged out of your fucking mind. You're put into some sort of like sedation um, uh, so that you're not like trying to grab the tube and pull it out of your mouth or so that you're, you know, so that you don't feel the discomfort and pain that is having this tube down your throat. Mm -hmm. Um, um, but what I'm hearing is that there, it is possible to have like a, a like a, a, an awake and walking ICU. Um, so if that is, if that, if that's the case that you can have like an awake and walking ICU with people that are ventilated getting up and moving about. Um, what does that experience look like and feel like for patients next to the patients that are coming out 
after having been sedated, but like showing these signs of, of, of really severe trauma. Because if I was, if I was put into the ICU and for some fucking weird reason, I had the ability to say what I want or what I don't want. I think I would probably go knock me the fuck out. If you're going to be, if you're going to be ventilating me, because that just sounds horrible and I don't want to remember it. Um, but but am I that much worse off by by selecting that choice as opposed to being awake? And like, if you're awake, like, what it, what is that experience like? It's it sounds like a nightmare. It, it seems just to make a quick analogy, it it seems sort of like um, going to therapy to confront your emotional pain that you're going through versus shoving it under and like going, oh, I'm just going to choose to ignore that. Like most people are happier to go that emotional pain doesn't exist. I'd rather not talk to a therapist about it. And therefore I'm better off if I don't address it. But what we're finding out is actually, that's probably not the case. Absolutely. And I, I had, I remember years later, so I did travel nursing for a few years and quickly realized that I was very alone in my perspective. And I didn't know, I didn't know the research. I didn't have any like way to defend myself or convince people of what I had been doing in my home ICU right? They did had no idea what I was talking about. And then I felt like, like I wondered if I was crazy, right? I felt like the lone wolf. And so I just kind of, I was still only two years into my career. Sure. So I just was like wanting to fit in, just kind of went with a groove, not knowing what patients were experiencing. Right. Um, didn't have any like tools to really advocate for best practices. Cause I didn't understand the power that I had and the skills that I had. <clears throat> so then after two years, I went back to Salt Lake city for grad school and, um, went back to that home ICU and I saw this huge contrast in outcomes and I saw such a difference and I loved my job again. I got tired of caring for rotting zombies in the bed, Yeah, but I went back to that ICU and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm connecting with them. I'm watching them walk out the doors. This is so much better. Why is this so different? So mm-hmm. I started going to the research, but I really, when I tried to talk about this online and like Facebook groups, um, People would great, say that's great complete. place for discourse. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. People were really open to this. They wanted yeah. to know my thoughts, right? Super kind in the comments. Yeah. They, to, yeah, they wanted to be told. Um, I just was like, but I wanted to know kind of, am I crazy? Like, does, is anyone else doing this? I just want to get a feel of what's going on out there besides the 11 ICUs I'd worked in. And uh, that was always what I was met with was this is inhumane. If it was me, I'd want to be knocked out. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to do this for patient safety. They're going to pull their tube out, all these things. So I was like, okay, I see where they're coming from because and we'll get into ICU delirium. Mm-hmm. I had seen what they see as far as what happens when you take sedation off. Um, but they hadn't seen what I had seen I see as far as never sedating patients. I, I already see where this is going. Like <laughs> the, the, the delirium is a, is a direct byproduct of the sedation. Yeah, no, if, you, if you bypass the sedation, then the delirium isn't there. And the delirium, from what I gather from, you know, speaking with, with you here and, and speaking with, with Kira, my partner, um, is the delirium is the thing that is causing patients to do things like try to pull out their fucking ventilation tubes and, and you know, doing these things that are going to like accidentally harm them while yeah. they're under while they're under care. There, it's a really difficult situation, especially for the nurses. Mm. Um, but I still so I could see like the nursing perspective. I could see it in the research, but I still had so many questions about the patient perspective because you're talking right, saying, right. Yeah, but I, I've never, I've never been intubated. So who am I to speak for the patient, right? So I started asking my patients in that ICU, "Would you rather be sedated right now?" And I asked dozens of them, and they were like, they all gave me this like, and they would, they'd even write on their clipboard, "Why?" why? Question right. mark or like H no, and I was like, so what? Where's the, so who 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 can compare them, right? So I certainly 
found on an ICU survivor group, a survivor who became episode number three of my podcast, Walking Home from the ICU. She's had ARDS three times. The first time she had the classic um, conveyor belt approach to automatically being sedated for weeks. <clears throat> she, um, she watched babies burn. Oh, wow. And you have to understand, as I've come to understand, that this is not, these aren't just nightmares, hallucinations, delusions. I don't even like using those words because if you talk to them, they are psychologically scarred as if they physically lived it. Sure. So you think about like a bad dream you've had and you kind of like shudder for the next day or two, but that's like what a few minutes or a few hours for them. It's, it's weeks. She, she, she worked for weeks to try to save these babies that were burning in a fire. Oh my God. That is. Yeah. I mean, like when you think about it, like, like dream, you know, you could have, you could have a dream where you're saving, you're trying to save a bunch of burning babies that could feel like weeks. Um, But when you wake up, you go, Oh, I'm awake. I was sleeping. And of course I had a bad dream because that's what happens sometimes when you sleep. But if I was sitting here right now talking to you and I'm also seeing a bunch of burning babies in the corner of my office right now, um, that's going to fuck me up because I'm not expecting that. That's not the thing that is like supposed to be happening right now while I'm sitting here having a conversation with you. And so to be in a state of sedation, having this like full on hallucination you don't have the context of, oh, I went to sleep and I'm going to wake up. Or when you wake up, you know, it was like, oh, well, I expected that because I was taking a fucking nap or whatever. You're going through something that, as far as you're concerned, is your sh- is the shared reality. It's the reality I, that everybody else has as well. And like I talked to survivors 13 years out after intensive trauma therapy, CBT, EMDR, yeah. talk therapy, support groups. They can finally talk about it, but they still admit to having emotions connected to those memories it doesn't just go away and um we assume that they're unaware of their surroundings but they're not they still hear things they feel things but it gets oftentimes engulfed into this delirium and twisted into something much more vivid graphic gruesome so i see clinicians have been charged by um survivors for sexual assault right and to them, to the survivors, it is so real. But and there's no amount of telling them it, that you were having a urinary catheter placed. That was not sure. sexual assault. Sure. And especially if they've had previous trauma, it seems like that comes into they're reliving that trauma over again and vividly. Right. And and so this is one of the main causes of post ICU PTSD. Right. And this can increase mortality by forty six percent in anyone that has PTSD for any reason. And I've seen in survivor groups that some survivors have died by suicide right in large part because of their cognitive impairments also uh, from their ptsd but also from the cognitive impairments the loss of quality of life the loss of career i mean everything changes after i see delirium hi i'm jesse crookshank jesse crookshank I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. 
And what we're, and okay, right. And so again, I would just want to say like what we're speaking about right now is ICU delirium. This is the, this is the thing, you know, I've, so I've spoken to Kira about, about this a number of times. Like she, you know, she worked in the, the cardiovascular ICU and she would come home from work and tell me stories about like her day at work. And I've heard about I, I, ICU delirium a number of times over and over, which is why I was so excited to talk to you about this today. Um, and just for like, for people, I mean, obviously no one wants to be in the ICU. I would never want to be in the ICU. Um, but when you hear, when, when I hear my partner talk about the patients that she has on ICU, it takes that feeling of wishing you never have to be in the ICU and jacks that up far beyond anything you've ever thought or felt. And nor would you ever want anybody you know to experience what the ICU is because it literally sounds like a, a fucking living hell. Like it sounds awful. Can you give people a little bit of an, an example as um, from, from someone who has worked in ICUs, what it, what it looks like from your perspective when you see patients who are, you know, coming out of sedation in this type of delirium, like what does that, what does that look like? How does it manifest um, in the room? Um, yeah, for context, there can be lots of different causes of delirium, even just having an infection, being in the ICU period, being on a ventilator, anytime your sleep is disrupted. So anyone that comes to ICU is at risk of developing ICU delirium, but there is also a spectrum of severity. So, um, of course, in this awake and walking ICU, I saw delirium. There was a lot of, it was, it's a medical surgical ICU, um, kind of an unofficial ARDS unit. It had a lot of, it had a detox unit down the hall, a bone marrow transplant unit. So there was lots of sepsis, septic shock, multi-organ failure, ARDS. So we had delirium, some level of delirium, right? And so I was used to seeing delirium and treating it, but I had never, I guess maybe there's some exceptions when patients had come from outside facilities, but I didn't recognize why their delirium was so bad. And then, so that was my baseline. Then working these outside facilities or these other hospitals as a travel nurse, um, a lot of times we didn't even ever break sedation, like give a break from it, take a vacation. Mm -hmm. But about like 2016, there was this rollout, this protocol called the ABCDEF bundle, which is trying to guide clinicians to use less sedation, turn it off sooner. And so they would do these trials where you turn sedation down or off I guess to see how the patient does. And it was all perceived as a vacation, a trial, um, mm. an attempt, right? Um, and what happens is they come out a lot of times very agitated. Yeah. And from the nurse's perspective, when, and part of this rollout, they tried to find a very systematic way to approach it. And so they're like, let's just do five o'clock in the morning every, on every patient and see how it goes. Well, you're one lone nurse towards the end of your shift. You yourself are sleep deprived and delirious mm -hmm. and um, you have an agitated patient. You don't know if they're safe to be off the ventilator and you feel like, and it's culturally, you are in charge of keeping that tube in. So you turn down sedation and they come out thrashing and they're, they don't know what that tube's about. They're sure. going for it. They're mm -hmm. trying to pull it out. It's extremely traumatic and stressful. And you, I can't describe what it, it's like when you look them in the eyes, these patients, you, it's just sheer terror mm -hmm. and you can see the agony that they're in what is perceived by the clinicians is 
And I was told, see, they cannot tolerate the ventilator. They cannot mm. tolerate the tube. They're too uncomfortable. They're not ready to have that tube out. We have to resedate them. And mm. so the extrapolated conclusion of that would be that if you didn't give them any sedation at all, it would be even worse. Mm. Like that's yes. the torture. So, that's the that's the inhumane but, thing that that they were referring to. But what what's different from the hospital that you were first trained in and they're coming like when they put the ventilators in, are they not? sedated when they first go in and like when you're when you're like walking them are they not coming out of a sedation mm. in a similar way okay yeah that's a great question so um all of this is really impacted by the type of sedation mm. the um, dose of sedation or like the depth in which patients are sedated and how long they're sedated for so yes we give some sedation for that procedure we treat it i mean sedation is great it's great for surgeries it's great for procedures colonoscopies yeah. so we treat it like that it's a procedural sedation induction medications we just give them some boluses some couple just one time or maybe some repeated doses to keep them unaware of that procedure but then we let them come out so it's really like coming out of a colonoscopy so that's what makes it so much easier that's my experience as patients come out and it's a, it's a jolt right it's uncomfortable and they take a minute to acclimate so we do have them tied down initially to say hey hey we just these are your hands are tied down so you don't pull out this tube I like, I like to bring them a mirror. They can look at themselves like, okay, they can really process it. Their coping mechanisms are usually intact. Sometimes they come with some delirium or encephalopathy from whatever their critical illness is. Sure. So we just like buckle down and having the family there, trying to reorient them and just letting them get through that. Because responding to that kind of confusion from an infection with medications that cause delirium, like why would you give mm-hmm. a deliriogenic medication in response to delirium? I say in medical conferences... That's like giving bacteria in response to an infection. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and people get, you know, kind of jolted by that. But that that is the reality of it. Um, so there are lots of other things we can do to treat that delirium, to help their anxiety, their agitation. We need to make sure their pain's controlled. Mm. But it's really hard to do that when they are so out of control. Yeah. And they're you- much more likely to be way out of control if they've been sedated for prolonged periods of time sure. and that severity of ICU delirium is much higher. Yeah. So the duration is a big, is a big factor have, in how, how intense it is. Have you guys ever come out of um, like full on sedation? Yeah. Uh, when I have my appendix taken out. Sure. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, Did you ever? No, the bi- most I've been sedated was for my wisdom teeth and I, I wasn't like fully sure. I wasn't do you, fully do you, do you remember what that felt like coming out of it? No, I think I, I think I like, from what I remember, I slept. <laughs> sure, sure. Like, mm-hmm. a, like immediately when yeah. I came out, was just like, oh, whoa, that was a lot. And yeah, then- I, uh, I've come out of sedation, oof, man, a lot. Like probably over nine times in my life, um, and it is a, such a trippy experience. It is like, it's like, it's like, you know, you know how uh, I've woken up from being knocked out. Yeah, it's probably a little bit similar to that. It, it the way I, the Very way I confusing. like the way I, that I would like describe it is uh do you remember do you remember like dial up internet? Yeah. Yeah. Like when we get online <laughs> yeah. now it's like you press a button, boom, Wi-Fi's on, you're online. Coming out of sedation is like dial up internet. It's like you're coming online but it takes it takes like a, a minute. few minutes <laughs> and it and just a bunch of fucking blaring and screeching and confusion. And then all of a sudden you're like, fuck, what? Like, where am I? Am I getting a fax? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a really trippy experience. So like I can only imagine I can only imagine like 
being out of it for, you know, oh my god, several we- like several days to several yeah. weeks, and then coming to is is and the, I mean I you know I, I I was down for I don't know four hours five hours like and like even just the fact of like you're not actually sleeping so like right. you're waking right. up delir like you're yeah. waking up from not, a sleep deprivation not to use like the word <laughs> delirium but like delirious from the sleep deprivation yes. let alone all of the other shit. Yeah. Kaylee, right, Kaylee. there's so much going on during critical illness yeah. that's attacking the brain. Mm-hmm. And then we've also been giving neurotoxic medications. Right. And then we also have, I mean, what happens in surgery is you usually have fairly healthy pe- people with healthy livers and kidneys that can filter these medications out and metabolize them. But in the ICU, there are lots mm-hmm. of conditions that mm-hmm. hurt these organs. So all of that just accumulates or medications like propofol it it, um, deposits in the fat tissue Mm -hmm. so you have this huge accumulation over time and you're not just giving those doses for that time like wow so it deposits in fat tissue and then you can you can store that and that can release obviously over time as you would that get released like as you start to use those fat stores as energy um no it just i mean it just eventually releases from the fat tissue i think um but just in your obese patients i'm you know, as I train teams, I'm like, just think about it. I mean, you've got this obese patient who's been sedated at this certain level for a long time. How do you anticipate they're going to come out? So what happens, there are two different types of delirium. There's hyperactive delirium. That's when they're hyperactive. Like they're just really agitated. Usually um, they can have poor attention span or confusion, but usually they're just wild and it's, it can be a bucking rodeo, Right. So that's what we're used to as clinicians. We can identify that. We're like, yep, that's delirium. Um, but we're not really trained as to how to deal with it, right? So then we rush back to the sedation to keep them, quote, safe. Mm. There's also hypoactive delirium. And that's when they're still comatose. So it's really hard to tell when you turn sedation off. And this happened a lot during COVID because we were giving high, high dose ster- um, sedatives. A lot of times benzodiazepines. One study showed that 64% of COVID patients were getting continuous benzodiazepines. And that's one of the most lethal and toxic mm-hmm. medications you can give. Mm-hmm. Um, so when that happens, I mean, the brain is so disruptive, disrupted, it just turns off. So it's hard to tell, is there still sedation accumulated in the body? It's just going to take a long time to metabolize out. Or is their brain just so dysfunctional from that medication? It's hard to tell. And it can day, take days to weeks for them to become arousable. After those medications. So a lot of questions that families were asking is they turn sedation off and my loved one's not waking up. Are they, is, are they brain dead? And, and what's interesting is delirium is actually, it's called in a lot of studies, acute brain failure mm. or wow. acute mm-hmm. brain dysfunction. It mm. is an organ failure. So that's something that I was never taught. I wasn't panicked about delirium because I was just like, yeah, they're confused, they're annoying, they're they're crazy, whatever. This is all part of it. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Kelly, I'm I'm interested in in like the. So when we're talking about this, there, there never seems to be much of a shortage of information that we get. That's kind of like, hey, this is like from 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 everything that we know and the research that's that's there and clear and available. This is how we should be doing this thing, and it's not how we're doing it, and. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious in terms of your home hospital where you first learned this, and this was the, the kind of the, this was the standard of care, um, where you started versus the other ICUs that you traveled to, um, in your nursing career, um, and how 
This probably, I'm thinking that that is a thing in the U.S. healthcare system where it, hospitals are individually run, like they're their own entity. Whereas in Canada, there's like, they're, I'm not exactly sure that this is how it works, but I'm pretty sure like, you know, one hospital in our province, I don't think can just like change the standard of care. I think it would have to come as like a kind of like a whole, like a wholesale, like every hospital now does this, which would obviously make this more challenging. Um, but how does this message get received and how how far, if at all, has this information and standard of care expanded and traveled outwards from where you first started working? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. That's been um, a big uh, inquiry of mine the last couple of years because here I am in my doctorate program back in my home ICU. I even did... Um, During my program, I was a float nurse in that same hospital system that had a lot of hospitals. So I was working like nine ICUs just in that area. And I'd go back to that home ICU and I'm like, oh my gosh, why are we the only ones doing it? I mean, just your outcomes are so different if you go five miles down the road. Right. South or like three miles to the east. Like, why are we so, why are we so divided? Why is there such a huge, huge difference in how we're doing things? Um, So kind of the history of, this rollout, this ABCDF bundle, 2016s, they're like, hey, we're doing harm. Here's a solution. Try to avoid sedation. And and the way it was rolled out, they took a couple of like champions, a few people from all these different ICUs, trained them at Vanderbilt, sent them back to their home ICUs and said, okay, now teach your colleagues, go do it. And um, I've realized as I've been talking with clinicians throughout the world, the country, um, working as a consultant, there was impact from that. We did a really great study around that time with these these you know pilot ICUs that showed a lot of improvements in patient outcomes. But the culture didn't really change because the education didn't reach every clinician at the bedside. I don't, I, and I, I come to really appreciate that they don't know this. Mm. Even from that generation of clinicians, then we hit COVID and we went right back to the 90s in our mm. practices. Right. We lost a lot of those seasoned nurses that had learned this protocol. Mm. And in come these new clinicians fresh into their careers. All they know is deep sedation, paralysis, ARDS, COVID. This is just the conveyor belt approach to all patients. They're not being taught really how to titrate sedation, really what delirium is, what it does. So there's so much, um, so many gaps in the education that um, I had to really realize that that's the root of it. So, yeah. Sorry, sorry, continue. Well, so, so then, um, there is still a spectrum. So you might have some, some people that really understood the the ABCDF bundle, they're Mm. trying to bring it. And so there's a huge spectrum of compliance. Some ICUs are still using benzodiazepines, Mm. which to many other ICUs that are modernized would say, never should you use that. And except for maybe sometimes for seizures. Right. So there's a huge spectrum. And as far as how it's received, it was terrifying for me to start this podcast period. Mm-hmm. I was still working that, that, so I started working that awake and walk and I see as a nurse practitioner, love my job and, um, felt very compelled to get this information out and start a podcast. So that's why I call it an awake and walk and I see Cause I was trying not to use the hospital name, mm-hmm. but I also knew that who's going to hire me after I've exposed the ICU community. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I just went for it and that turned into doing presentations at about in like 21, I went to my first in-person conference 
It was a big trauma conference in Denver, Colorado. And I was terrified. I was like, how do I say this to their faces mm-hmm. that they're hurting and even killing people? Um, I just braced myself for getting booed off the stage and being shunned from the IT community forever. <laughs> <clears throat> but that's not what happened at all. It reaffirmed my understanding and my belief that clinicians are so good. They get into it for the right reasons. They care about patients. They want them to survive and thrive. So when I'm sharing these video clips of survivors talking about living and being traumatized by spending weeks trying to save their kids from being kidnapped or sexual assault or all these things, seeing the clinicians' faces, I mean, they were in tears. And I'm not out to like make everyone feel bad and regret their careers at all, but we can't fix what we cannot confront. Mm -hmm. So being very honest about what we're doing. But then also I go through all these case studies and examples of what can be, what I've seen, what that unit is doing. They were filled with hope and optimism. Mm. They were excited. They were sober. They wanted, they wanted, they craved, especially after COVID, right? They craved the opportunity to watch patients walk out the doors and continue their lives. So it's received really well surprisingly so it sounds so like I, something that should be like that should be like presented at ted med yeah so ted, I, ted talk for sure yeah because like the story and Polly and like let's test this out yeah. and the outcomes like it's very rich i, I do want to say like we we do for sure have like quite a um i would say like quite a swath of our listenership is is in the field of healthcare. um a lot of nurses listen to the show a lot of like physicians listen to the show um, and so I'm, I, you know, I, I'm thinking about Kira listening to this episode and I don't know what her response will be. Um, it will obviously clash with her experience. Exactly. It will. And so maybe her response will be, it sounds like this fucking lady is going through her own IC delirium. Like what the <laughs> fuck is she talking about? Right? Like, I'm sure there's somebody out there listening right now who is a nurse or a nurse pra- practitioner who's going, this is fucking crazy. But this if it's crazy, ba- but if it's backed up with with improved patient outcomes, there right. should be no, so there should be no argument. So here's my question. Um, in, in light of the fact that there is somebody right now listening to this who's having that reaction, what kind of like published literature mm-hmm. is there out there about this exact idea that you're talking about, these like awake and walking ICUs? Well, Johns Hopkins has this great library with organized topics, compilation of, all the literature related to this. And there are over 3000 studies within that library. Holy shit. Okay. And this is in regards to early mobility, post-ICU, uh, post-ICU syndrome, post-ICU PTSD, delirium, sedation, right? It's, it's, a, it's a pretty broad field, but over 3000 studies. Right. As far as supporting this awake and walking ICU approach, I would refer to the Brenda Pun study, um, or ABCDF bundle that was published in 2019. They, so they rolled this out like with the process I described. They had over 15,000 patients enrolled in this study, over 68 facilities. So of course there's a spectrum of compliance. You can't have the exact same process, you know, sure. especially when it's a new concept sure. in every ICU, right? So even with that huge spectrum across so many patients, on average, they found that seven-day mortality decreased by 68%. Whoa, wow. They found that patients were 46% less likely to come back to the ICU. Coma and delirium decreased by 25 to 50%. Patients were 36% more likely to discharge 
home from the hospital rather than to a care facility or rehab. Wow. Um, and then we have other studies showing that with this approach, their quality of life, their mm-hmm. cognition, long-term, their mental health, their PTSD, their physical capacity, functional outcomes, return to work, all of that is improved by using less sedation and more mobility. Mm-hmm. Could you could you send us a link to that study so oh, yeah. we could so we could I, add it to the show notes because I I do again if you are one of those people listening thinking like this is fucking nuts uh, and you work in the the field um, we'll make sure to put this this yeah. you know in the show notes so you can go check it out for yourself because like this is this is it's blowing this is blowing my mind yeah. it's and blowing my mind in the in in the research that you that you that you mentioned at the very outset of that question. Um, when you said that it's very, you know, it's very broad and there's these 3000 studies, was that sort of saying that, you know, there, there's, there, there's, you know, a, a very large number of studies on topics where the hypothesis wasn't to test awake and walking ICUs, but, you know, extrapolated conclusions would point to the s- supporting yes. that, that concept. Yes. And within that, um, ABCDF bundle, that 15,000 patient study, they found a direct dose dependent Outcome that outcomes were dose dependent. So um, if you look in the supplements, and I can even send you the the graphs from that study, please. That um, again, the less sedation used, the more mobility given, the better the outcomes were. So really, in that study, there were only only twelve percent of the patients were actually on their feet out of bed, because early mobility is such a, a culturally it's a really hard barrier to overcome. So they mm-hmm. still weren't to the point of awake and walking ICUs, but it showed that. A wake and walk in ICU approach is a mastery of this bundle and provides the best outcomes. Mm-hmm. So if on average, out of all those patients, 68% improvement in mortality, imagine, you know, if you were just to take that portion that were awake and walking, how much better those outcomes were. Mm-hmm. And as far as studying that exact ICU, and I'll just be really honest, because I don't work for that system anymore. And so I can just you know, throw it out there. There are so many politics that get in the way of studying that ICU. I have tried every which way to get in there to um, get that data, to do a retrospective study, looking at the COVID outcomes because they had many COVID units. That ICU was one of the highest acuity or the sickest COVID patients in the state of Utah. They continued that process. We were allowing patients to wake up after intubation, had them walking in their room, sitting up in the chair, unless they got to the point of being unable to oxygenate with movement then we'd have to sedate them, right? But we'd always be checking, are they ready to be unsedated? And as soon as they were, we'd have them up and moving. No one else in the world was really doing that with patients. Mm -hmm. And that data could totally change critical care medicine, right? To really show the impact on, Mm -hmm. because it's the same diagnosis, the same illness throughout that same community, but it's under lock and key because of the politics. It's incriminating against the other ICUs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was I was wow. really con, uh, uh, interested in, wow. in in asking about that point about like how do you know because you you start off by saying that there's like a spectrum of experience for the people who are in the ICUs as well, and so I I was curious like you know like is this practice the awake and walking ICU is this like good for like you know people who are lower on the spectrum of like intensity of their ICU say. Mm-hmm. Or is this like, you know, this is a general practice that should be applied to all patients in the ICU because it shows better outcomes across the entire spectrum? Yeah, that's why the ABCDF bundle, each letter represents a different um, tool that you can use in treating patients. So A is assess, prevent, and treat pain. 
B is both awakening and breathing trials. C is choice of sedation and analgesia. D is delirium, assess, prevent, um, and treat delirium. E is early mobility. F is family. So it's these tools that you use to approach care. And it should all be guided by this overall goal of getting them home and uh, avoiding these complications, right? Um, and so it's supposed to be very adaptable and customizable for each patient. But the the way it's been approached and taken is a very conveyor belt approach. You start sedation on everyone um, at some point, and sometimes a lot of units, it's determined by their ventilator settings. Once their ventilator settings are low, now you start doing awakening trials. But if they come out agitated, you can turn sedation back on, call it a failed trial, try it again tomorrow. And that's just, and no mobility, family's very minimal, like it, the way it's been approached. So the true A to F bundle is very adaptable for each patient at the different phases, different level of acuities throughout their journey in the ICU. But what I've noticed is that clinicians don't know why they're doing it. It's just a task list. They have to chart that they did an awakening trial. So they do it and they don't know how to do So when I was a travel nurse, the my orientee nurse in one unit that was doing the A to F bundle in the early stages of it said, Ugh, we have to do this thing. So you just turn sedation down. You see them start to thrash, turn sedation Ooh. back on and just chart it as failed and done. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know why they're thrashing. I don't know what's going on. I can't communicate with them. And they're like, no, did, they just can't tolerate the ventilator. So that's how awakening trials are often trained mm-hmm. and perceived. Now, in that awakened walking ICU, if we have, we're doing a waking trial, whether someone's come from a facility where they've been sedated or they had a need to be sedated, they had seizures, they couldn't oxygenate with movement, you know, they had to have it. Now that need for it is gone. Now we're determined to get that off. We turn sedation down. If we see them agitated, we're going to get the family in there. We're going to communicate with them. We're going to get them up and mobilized. We're going to try to treat that agitation, figure out what the cause of it is. Mm. We have those tools because we understand that's delirium. And I was mortified to learn as a nurse and then a nurse practitioner after working the ICU for what, seven plus years, that delirium doubles the risk of dying in the hospital. Mm. For every one day of delirium, there's a 10% increased risk of death. That changed how I approached delirium. I was actually panicked about it, but clinicians don't know that they're not trained that way. So they just see it as like, oh, the most important thing is to keep that tube in and we have to keep the only way you can keep it in is to deeply sedate them. So they just keep the sedation going. So this is supposed to be very adaptable for each patient, but we don't practice it that way in general throughout the community because we're not trained to. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because like, I, I don't think that, that, um, like the the nurses or the clinicians that are in the hospital think about this, but like when you're so focused on the tube, you do forget about the person. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, almost feels like it's like, keep that tube in, but like, you know, there's a person there. And and yeah. I have a whole episode on that. They're called unplanned extubations. A lot of times they're self-extubations, like the patients get pulled out themselves. Um, those are 11 times more likely to happen in the setting of delirium. Mm-hmm. And that's like, from what I gather, that's super dangerous, right? Like, like if a, if a patient pulls their vent out, it's it the the increase for death is like quite high. It depends. No, not it, really. depends. It, de- it just depends. Okay. So, and that's a whole. I mean, I'll refer you to my to my episode, okay? Because it's a whole conversation, but it depends on. Um, so the patients that actually pull their tube tubes out are much more likely to do better in a lot of studies. Whoa! Because Whoa. they're and my theory is that the more awake and the stronger you are. To even get that tube out, the more likely you are to survive and not have to be re-intubated, have that tube placed back in. Mm. Compared to someone that um, has been deeply sedated, another side note about that sedation, not only does it 
cause acute brain failure, but it also causes uh, muscular failure. It's toxic to the muscles. Right. So you're not using your muscles. You're hyperinflamed from this critical illness, but then you're also getting toxic medications to your muscles. So you lose your muscle mass so quickly, but also the neuromuscular connection to your muscles. So the more that happens, the less like you, likely you are to be able to breathe. Mm-hmm. Your diaphragm, your respiratory muscles, they're shot. Mm-hmm. They're gone <laughs> or they're at least dysfunctional and or just so, so severely atrophied. So that's one of the reasons why a lot of our COVID patients had to have tracheostomies if they survived because they mm-hmm. took sedation off. They see if they can breathe on their own. Either they cannot, they have a paralyzed diaphragm or they're too weak to sustain their own work of breathing. So mm-hmm. then they give them a tracheostomy, then send them to rehab to relearn how to sit, stand, walk, swallow, but also breathe. Mm-hmm. So when that happens, if you lose a tube in that setting when they're too weak to breathe, yeah, it's super dangerous. Yeah, right, right. But if you keep yeah. them awake and mobile, they're less likely to get that tube out. And if they do, they're usually fine. Wow. Wild. Man, this is like, yeah, yeah, it's, I, this is I, really mind blowing. I told you guys, right? Like before I was like, guys, we're going to be talking about something really fucking you interesting. Did. I, I, I mean, Kaylee, this, this is, this has been, this has been amazing um and and just like just so nice to talk to someone who is like deeply passionate and dedicated about spreading awareness about this one particular thing um again uh give your before before we sign up before we like plug the podcast and all that i do have one quick like sort of rapid fire it's one singular rapid fire question what's the deal with the full moon shit Huh? Yeah. What's I've up heard with of this that? too? Yeah. Is that like is because I know it's fucking. I mean, anecdotally, anecdotally, it's it's a legit thing. But like, what the fuck is going on? Can anything be legit anecdotally? It. Ha- I mean, this ask is. any ask any nurse, and they will say. No, I it, think there is. O- a- I'm just saying. I think it's a, the sentence is kind of like an oxymoron. Right. Sort of. But I mean, I don't like, I don't I don't know. Are there, I don't know if there's research that's gone into, well, when the full moon's out, everyone's loopy <laughs> and uh, all the patients are fucked. Like I've had lots of shifts for, yeah, it's like, what is going on here? This is insane. And we look out the window. We're like, oh yeah. Okay. Cause it's a full moon. So I don't know if that just. I, right. Like, yeah, it, or, yeah, I, I don't know. It, I, don't, guys, I don't know. Guys, this is called confirmation bias. <laughs> there's also, there's a, like also, also, yeah. also, also <laughs> if there's a full moon, like the three or four or five days before the full moon, it looks pretty full. And then there's like three right. or four yeah, or five right, days right, after right, where right. it looks pretty full. So really like a third of the month looks like a full moon. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe that that's that's my next goal is to find someone who's done a, a published study on the full moon and why it makes people so loopy. Now, when Mercury's in retrograde, that's a different story. <laughs> that's a different. That's a, that's a different. Totally loopy. different. That's story. a different loopy. Yeah. I'll yeah. tell you another weird phenomenon that I, I I repeatedly saw happen. It felt like there were waves of certain diagnoses. So it's yeah. like, Whoa. oh, here it's like a week of the liver patients. So it's like a week of the alcohol withdrawal. It's a week of the pneumonia. It's a week Whoa. of the ARDS. Like it's yeah. a week of the septic shock. It's like this like all these bone marrow transplant patients are like, it's just seemed to be a trend and a fad. Yeah. You, in a, you know, 16 bed ICU, suddenly you'd have like five people with the same diagnosis that you wouldn't normally have period. It's like when yeah. you they're buy all there a, at the same time. Yeah. It's like when you buy a Honda civic, you're like, Oh man, look, at, are, all look at all these Honda civics. Everywhere. Everyone's driving. Yeah, everyone's a civic. got one, you know, confirmation yeah. bias. That's guys. It. That's totally. It. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, you know what though? It just proves that we're in a simulation. <laughs> that's uh, that's maybe there's some published that and that is one of the and that is one of the most brilliant design aspects of Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> <laughs> Kaylee, uh, again, give your give your podcast a, sh- a shout out and uh, and give yourself a little plug. You know, is can people stay up to date with the work that you're doing? 
Um, when's the TED Talk? Yeah, yeah. When's the TED <laughs> Talk real. coming up? I, you know, I've applied for a TED Talk, and I haven't had any bites yet. So I don't, we need I don't to know. Get I that feel like stamp this... of approval. That's yeah. it. Yeah, that's it. Well, if you can get me in, let me know because I, I, I am desperate to get this out to the public. So I started the clinician podcast, walking home from the ICU in um, about January, February of two thousand and twenty. So I had received this revelation by God. There's no other explanation for it. Like I almost like heard a voice, start a podcast. Didn't even listen to podcast. Didn't know what that really meant. So quickly, I whipped out like 30 some odd episodes because I couldn't sleep. I couldn't shake this feeling. And I had to have these 30 some odd episodes done by the beginning of March. And boom, COVID hits in March, right? Um, and so I've continued throughout that process. It's grown. And that's specifically for ICU clinicians. So that's called walking home from the ICU. That's where I have survivors telling their stories, clinicians, researchers, but it's really geared towards the ICU community, but anyone can listen. I have survivors. I have the layman listening to it, mm. but I couldn't shake this feeling that I was harboring a dirty secret from the public. And I was being reached out to by families and I wanted to provide them this information because what, what do they do if they're in the ICU and they don't know this information? Don't mm. they have a right to, mm -hmm. and families can be such a powerful tool to prevent and treat delirium. So I started the podcast walking you through the ICU geared towards families, but it's really good information for the layman to give a big summary of here's where we're at. Here's why this has happened. Here's what you can do about it. I think anyone should listen to that as they write their own advanced directives yes. before they ever end up in the ICU. So that, that first survivor I talked about in my episode number three, after her first round of ARDS, she had a terrible rehabilitation terrible PTSD, cognitive impairments, just once she was able to, she was back in her attorney's office and had documents drafted, making her a DNS, a do not sedate. So she said, unless it is essential to save my life, don't you dare sedate me. The next two times she had ARDS, she was awake, texting on her cell phone, had a totally different experience. So you say, what, what would be your preference? Going by her and many other survivors that have had it both ways, they're all about being awake. Mm -hmm. They said, I'll take the ICU over delirium anytime. And That's a much better world. So check out the podcast, Walking You Through the ICU. If you could ever be in the ICU, anyone could be in the ICU. So um, that would be my recommendation. Uh, my website that has the transcriptions for all my podcast episodes with all the citations is at www.daytoniceuconsulting.com. Mm. And that gives more information about my consulting services. I help support families, but I'm especially focused on um, training ICU teams to become awake and walking ICUs. Cool. That's, That's awesome. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. This is, this has been just a, a real, real eye opener. And uh, on behalf of uh, the three of us and all of our listeners, we really thank you for taking time of your schedule to sit down with us. Yeah. Thanks for caring about it. And thanks for spreading it. You're saving lives. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. 
The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.